0: Hey there, I'm Maud Garrett. Welcome to episode three of Millions Podcast by Harrison AI, the cutting edge med tech company that's on a mission to urgently scale global healthcare capacity using AI automation to elevate the care clinicians can provide. We've been sitting down with leading engineers, data scientists, and innovators at some of the world's most iconic companies to talk about how technology, and specifically AI, is changing the world around us. In this episode, our guest is Jed Doherty, the VP of Platform Strategy at Data IQ, the Paris-founded, New York-based platform for everyday AI. In a wide-ranging conversation with our host, Mark Pesci, Jed talks about the sexiness of data science as a profession and the way it's become commoditized. In his very evocative words, the area sometimes seems like a nightclub that's reached capacity. Jed also has a refreshingly open take on the evolution of machine learning. Check this out.
1: At the beginning, Everything needed to be hand-coded. I needed to be building it for the very first time ever, which, which is more true back then. It's less true now. Sometimes it's okay to buy instead of build.
0: So let's get into the discussion. Over to Mark to kick us off with some context around many businesses' trepidation about the benefits of AI.
2: When you make something complex look clear and easy, people don't necessarily believe you. Or maybe they don't believe that it can be done. Or perhaps they just don't believe that they themselves can do it. No, no, no. This takes an expert. I'd make a muddle of it. So they don't even try. And this could be one reason why a whopping 60% of businesses in APAC still haven't even dipped a toe into the water's Of artificial intelligence and machine learning. They just believe it's too hard. It's too much work with unknown benefits. And too many businesses look like they might be falling into this gap between perception and opportunity. This is exactly the point to bring our guest into this conversation. Jed Doherty is the VP of Platform Strategy at Dataiku. Jed, welcome to Millions.
1: Thanks so much, Mark. Uh, Very happy to be here.
2: So Jed, Tell us something about your own journey and about Dataiku because I am embarrassed to say that you are a very big, very successful technology company and I've really not heard of you.
1: Sure. Uh, So I think I can talk a little bit about Dataiku through my own journey, which which very much dovetails with what you just brought up. Um, I started in data science back in 2010 when people were still, I think, coming up with that term. Um, It was very new. People weren't sure if we were just doing data analysis. People were unclear on what machine learning was. Uh, and at that time, it was very, very much a domain of pure experts. You needed to be very good at statistics. You needed to be good at math. You were writing your own algorithms often. Uh, and it, it, it absolutely was a place for kind of the rarefied few. There was a article back then, I think, that came out of, uh, I want to say MIT or Harvard around Data science being the sexiest profession. That was a big talking point in the early 2010s. And of course, that's why I joined, right? it have to be the sexiest profession, why not? And I worked at a few tech startups, often being the only data scientist on staff. I ended up joining Data IQ uh, around seven years ago, eight years ago, when it was also a very small French tech startup. And seeing that evolve from a small startup to a... Large organization working with most of the Fortune 500 at this point uh, ha- has really given me a very interesting view on the way this profession, these professions, has have evolved. Uh, what the skill set and what the requirements are now versus 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it, it, it's become drastically different. Nobody writes their own algorithms anymore. People are using uh, the existing open source ones. People are you know, just hitting APIs from the big uh, cloud players. It, it, it's very, very much changed uh, the way that all of us work and, and the, the skills that we need.
2: All right, so for those of us who don't know what Data IQ does, could you give us the elevator
1: pitch? Sure, so Dataiku is an end-to-end machine learning platform, which sounds terrifying, but it is really built for uh, not your hardcore coder user. It's built under the assumption that people who work in industries, who know the domain, who know uh, the underlying problems that need to be solved, and to some extent who know the data in an intuitive sense, are often the very best people to be building out the uh, machine learning algorithms, to be building out the predictions uh, that are going to power their businesses into, into the you know, 21st century. And Dataiku is built as a tool that should be helping these people directly build these things rather than having to rely on the uh, extreme mathematician experts that that formerly dominated this industry.
2: All right. So you have some very big customers in Australia, including, say, Australia Post. And you you obviously don't need to talk about specifics. But when you talk about Australia Post, they're dealing with a lot of data because they're dealing with a lot of packages and a lot of customers. What are the kinds of data tasks that you would be helping Australia
1: Post solve? So, I was just uh, just working on something around this. Sort of a fun use case, sort of feels a little bit magical, so a, a bit interesting, but the people who have actually been developing it are analysts rather than uh, machine learning engineers. The idea here is that every time a package comes through uh, and it needs to go out into a car for, to be delivered, you should be optimizing the way that you pack these cars full of packages. <laughs> So it's like moving house and trying to fit everything into the moving truck problem. Bingo, exactly. And, uh, you know, if if you're packing a guitar, that's a weirdly shaped box, all of this type of thing. That's very different from if you're packing, you know, a few one meter by a half meter uh, cardboard box. And so they have developed a um, uh, algorithm that looks at a photo, uh, looks at a bunch of photos and tries to optimize the set of packages that goes into each car for the perfect packing, uh, which sounds like a very funny uh, use case, but it's actually saving saving tons of money, uh, optimizing the way they work, saving uh, gas, uh, helping the environment, um, and kind of intuitive.
2: It's the, te- it's the Tetris problem, right? How do I mm-hmm. get these shapes to fit together so that the row goes away and I win? And you know, there's always that one person when you're packing who will be able to go, no, put that there. And you're like, how did you know that? Because they have this great sort of spatial organization. And so you've really built that now into a program that brings that capability across all of Australia
1: Post, all of their vans, all of their drivers. Well, and it's, it's funny, it's not us who have built it. It's really the user's internal to these companies that are, that are building these things. We're just providing a platform that allows them to, to do it themselves. I'm not going to pretend I'm a good packer.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, but what does that mean? What does a platform have to be? I know Dataiku talks about this thing called everyday AI. What does that mean in practice? If I'm Australia Post and I'm going to unpack the van of Dataiku so that I can use it, what's in, what's in that
1: van? Yeah, yeah. we think about a lot of projects as moonshot projects, or maybe not a lot, but a few moonshot projects. Incredibly difficult, going to acquire incredibly unique research, uh, going to acquire maybe, you know, millions or or billions of dollars, uh, and and will completely change the world when Mm -hmm. it comes out. LLMs that are happening right now, ChatGPT is maybe something like that. But Mm -hmm. most problems for most organizations, although they might have machine learning, are relatively everyday problems. Dataiku aims to provide a visual interface to work on these more everyday problems. That's, uh, I I think the Australia Post is a great example of that. We're not expecting everybody in an organization to learn how to write PySpark or uh, R, God forbid. (laughs) (laughs) No offense, I learned R first, so I I can say bad things Well, that's the language (laughs) for statisticians, right? That's right, yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) We hope that people can work with visual tools uh, and drop into code when they need to or find an expert on their team who can help them out with code when necessary. But largely, somebody who's good at Excel should be able to do a lot of this work.
2: How do you convince someone who has never done this before and probably thinks that they can't do this, that in fact
1: they can? How do you get them over that internal barrier? I actually, I'm going to turn this on his head really fast. I find it much more challenging to convince the people who already are doing it that they're not the only people who can. Ah, okay. Uh, it, it, I often find the opposite is true, that, that if you give people a tool that they feel relatively comfortable in and you start letting them see results, they're really excited. They want to keep going. Right. But it is, there's a certain element of, okay, the uh, the sexiest job in the world is, is maybe becoming a little commoditized. <laughs> and, and that's that's a threat. And that, that's, that's something that, that maybe the, the, the experts want to be able to hold on to. So, there's definitely a little tension on both sides, for sure,
2: right. that there's a bit of a velvet rope here, and they really want to keep themselves on the on on the nightclub side of the velvet rope, not the street
1: side of that <laughs> right, velvet right. rope. It's going to let anybody in here. <laughs> Nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Yeah, exactly. So. They'll let anyone in, right? Yeah.
2: So if you are one of the people who have those deep skills in data science that means that you are able to sort of just suck up data IQ right away, does your role change in your organization as more people start to use dataiku? Do you become more of a of a troubleshooter or do you focus on different problems that the rest of the organization
1: would not be capable of? What have you seen? I think it's a combination of those two hopefully not a troubleshooter but I do think you know I spoke earlier about the moonshot idea right if if the if you can expand your organization I was just talking I was talking to a major bank uh, and they said they had 60,000 technologists yeah. which is I don't know what a technologist means but it's a lot of people using computers we'll just say that they have 60,000 technologists. If I am one of 100 data scientists at this bank, or even 500,000 data scientists, I simply do not have the time or probably the interest to be answering the questions of 60,000 people. I want those folks, as much as possible, to be able to answer those questions themselves so I can work on the very high-value, very um, high-touch, high-risk problems that that are going to have the most effect for, for my organization. Right. So in other words, you really do get to keep the sexy work and everyone else gets a really good tool that solves their problems. That's exactly right. And the the other half of that, we we said troubleshooting, uh, uh, the other half of it is really around enablement. I find that some data scientists are able to, let's say build a tool inside the Dataiku framework or inside of other frameworks uh, that all of a sudden hundreds of people in their organization are using on a Mm. day-to-day basis Mm -hmm. and they're a hero now. Uh, even if it's a, it, even if previously they would have built it just the, for themselves.
2: All right. You walk into an organization that maybe has not got a lot of depth here and you turn on the spigot. What becomes the most complex challenges that start to pop up in that organization? And what do you expect? And how do you think you're going to need to
1: overcome those challenges? I think a big one is a lot of organizations, especially when they're starting, it's a more human challenge than a technological one. Uh, They think that what they need to do first is build out the ultimate technology stack Mm. or as a correlation, the ultimate perfect data set with okay. which they will be able to answer all of the questions of their company right. all at once. And then right. and, you know, there's gonna be a light beaming down from heaven and we're all going we're never gonna have to what? do anything ever again. You know yeah. the whole chorus. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And and they spend years building out the most complicated possible technology stack. I often I often see sort like an architecture slide at these organizations. And it's got, you know, 70 different tools and 50 boxes. And then way over in like the top right-hand corner, it says users. And there's like one arrow (laughs) going to the users. Kind of like, maybe (laughs) let's focus on the people who are doing the work and start giving them the tools they need to answer basic questions. And the basic- That's crazy talk. Yeah, I know, it's wild, it's totally wild. (laughs) Uh, But the basic questions they're asking are gonna influence the way we build out the rest of this tech stack. We're gonna learn what's important rather than trying to guess it at the beginning.
2: So you really do then take a user-centered approach here, right? And you're when you go into an organization, you invite them to go on a user-centered journey
1: around the things that they think they're going to need. Absolutely. I think I think the people who have the questions are, are going to be the ones who should be driving uh the way to answer them.
2: All right. So we've got A fair few of the Fortune 500 on, but we know because of the data that's been collected in APAC that really only about 40% of businesses in APAC have even started to use AI and machine learning. We know, of course, that all of the businesses that deal with finance, or whatnot, they're all very deeply invested. But many of the other businesses just simply aren't. They don't necessarily understand the value. They don't understand both what they're gaining and what they could be losing. What's your perspective on that low number and what do you think it will take to sort of
1: move that needle? I definitely think that APAC is a more conservative region than EMEA or uh, North America, um, certainly. Part of that is a relative comfort and isolation for less market forces, maybe driving people forwards. But I think also part of it is just, I guess, a physical isolation to some extent. And to not not seeing as many uh, organizations succeed, especially as you said, organizations outside of finance or certain marketing technology Uh, You're kind of going, well, you know, I'm a hardware store. Well, why does this matter? Even if I'm a huge hardware store (laughs) uh, or or a thousand hardware stores, well, why does this matter to me? Uh, I already have a near monopoly in the region. Why should I be evolving? So I definitely think that that is, that's a reality in the region.
0: Just a quick pause here to add something interesting into the mix. Research from McKinsey released in 2019 forecasts the opportunity for between one trillion and four trillion dollars to be added to the economy over the next 15 years if Australian businesses capitalize on the opportunities AI brings. That is trillion, not billion. That is what I call growth. Anyway, back to Mark.
2: And it's interesting, you bring that up. If you have a 1,000 hardware stores, you're going to be focused on your supply chain. Like, Like nobody's business. And I'm also thinking, you know, the biggest businesses in APAC are either banks or they're miners, and again, incredibly dependent on supply chain and logistics, because that's what that's what your business is as a miner. And both of them have probably completely integrated these tool sets into their businesses, while the hardware store doesn't see it as being the same class of problem. So how what's the communication task there to a business that is clearly risking putting itself more at risk because it isn't
1: using these tools. Well, I think uh, you can see the examples from both EMEA and NA of organizations that didn't shift, Mm -hmm. that waited too long Mm -hmm. and then disappeared. Uh, Probably in the mid-90s, nobody thought Sears should learn about machine learning, but then all of a sudden, Amazon did and they didn't. And obviously... uh, more shifts than just the ability to predict what people are gonna be buying and predict how to get it to them as fast as possible. But that sure did help Amazon. And it sure didn't help Sears. (laughs) Right, and it helped Walmart because Walmart was also very early on that for physical stores. Absolutely, Walmart. And also Walmart's purchase of Jet was a very good move. And they've used that to, to very much become the top dog as far as physical distributors of these type of things.
2: I mean, that brings up a really good question. If you're an existing business, does it make sense for you to look at an acquisition of an aligned business that has a very strong MLAR AI component, because it allows you to bring that capability
1: into the business? Do you see that happening a bit? I do, yeah. Um, a great example there is uh, Morgan Stanley recently, I think uh, two years ago, purchased E-Trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has absolutely injected new blood, new ideas into their organization uh, to, to great success. So I, I think that's actually, if you're large enough to see the smaller the smaller guy who's who's doing it the new way, and you have the opportunity to to pick a, pick them up, then that's absolutely a, a great idea. All right, you have
2: been in the field for a decade, and machine learning a decade ago was mm, yeah, whatever. This is guys over here doing something weird with some algorithms that's gonna help them recognize photos or whatever. And of course, now it's front and center. Mm -hmm. How has that changed? I think both your career and also where you see that going in the future. You know, it's become very central to business.
1: What does that mean in five or 10 years time? I think we're going through a really interesting transition right now. Uh, I said earlier, commoditization. yeah. that is happening faster than we ever thought. Obviously, with ChatGPT, with LLMs, uh, it's, it's very feasible that in a couple years, you won't need to write any code at all. You won't need to even um, work with a visual tool, or maybe the visual tool is more a re- result of, of what you've constructed. Uh, and instead, you're just going to say, Type into a machine, hey, given uh, all my Salesforce data, how would you uh, write letters to all of my prospects? There's no reason that that isn't a relatively soon to come case. Uh, So I definitely think the continued commoditization, we could think a few years ago, kind of everybody learning the tool of how to Google. Yeah. It's a common thing that we've, we've thought about is how to Google. <laughs> I can very much imagine the, which, frankly, has drastically changed the way software development works, right? Uh, I don't need to know how to write, I don't know, B-tree search algorithms yeah. anymore. Yeah. I just lo- look up whatever that is on Google. We can imagine machine learning becoming very similar. is, is learning how to pose a prompt to a large language model, something like that, uh, and, and and working off of that.
2: You know, when someone's thinking up a prompt now, the first thing they'll do is Google to see if anyone else has had a similar prompt, right? That's already happening.
1: Iterative layers here. (laughs) So yeah, I definitely think the continued commoditization of data science and that that those type of um, questions, meaning it's going to become more and more democratized, more and more people are going to be able to do it, it's going to be more accessible to literally everyone, means that other questions come to the fore in this big data space. Uh, Am I going to be relying on publicly available algorithms that are available to everyone else? Am I going to store store my data in a cloud that may release a competitive product to me? Am I going to pay someone to set up a compute setup for me so that I can run large models or ask big questions? Or am I going to keep that on-prem or take care of that myself, build it out myself? These more type of strategic, almost infrastructure questions, I really think are going to be coming to the fore for everybody.
2: And this is interesting because one of the things that machine learning and AI have done is it you know, we have this tick-tock between off-premises and in-house. And the cloud really took things out of the house. And now we're actually starting to see, because people do need on-demand, very high-quality compute, but they also needed to be secure because it's got their most sensitive data running in it. That there's a real reason to bring that back in house again. So, do is this part of this very? You know, I have been in the industry long enough to see that pendulum swing a couple of times. Do we see that pendulum swinging back now?
1: I think maybe there's more of a split than a full swing. Cloud is just too darn useful for so many things. Uh, if I need, if I have elastic variability in the amount of compute I need, it's very very hard to reason that I should buy a bunch of servers (laughs) on-prem. That said, you know, we, we do see a lot more edge computing.
0: Now, for anyone not familiar with the terminology, edge computing basically refers to a range of networks and devices at or near the user, as opposed to storage in the cloud. Now there's lots of benefits to cloud storage. However, having your own equipment on your premises enables processing at greater speeds and volumes and gives you more control over your sensitive data. Okay, back to Jed.
1: I was working with a large oil and gas firm who was trying to put algorithms out on every oil well. That's definitely their physical infrastructure, yeah. right? Uh, that's not something that uh, you know Amazon's going to be be sticking uh, sticking VMs out on, on out on specific oil wells. Uh, and, and also the specialization of these uh, I hesitate to continue to bring up the generated generative AI topic. Yeah. But we're going to have a drastic specialization of each one of these, where you have, yes, maybe this giant model to begin with, but then you're training the last few layers on your company's very specific data. You can imagine customization happening everywhere there, where it's not just relying on third-party capabilities, but a combination of the two. You know, you've talked about Excel as the
2: democratization of the spreadsheet and the manipulation of data. And of course, if you go into any organization, they're going to have Excel formulas that have been developed that are specific to the organization, right? And, you know, here is the spreadsheet that we keep all this stuff in. And here is this, Ted did this formula and Jane did this formula five years ago. And we know they work and we haven't looked at them too closely. And you can see maybe some of that's going to start to happen with AI and machine learning. You have very specific things that are sitting on top of the models. At the same time, you also now have, and it's actually already being rolled out very quickly. Microsoft is now integrating GPT-4, so very high-level language model capabilities, into basically all of Office, right? And and into uh, Visual Code Studio, all of that is now going to have this layer underneath. And then you're going to have the layer on top that's specific to whatever business it's operating in. How are these pieces going to start to affect how we see AI? Do it, does it just kind of disappear into, yes, that's part of what this does? And how does that change the role within the workforce? Do we need as many workers? Are we starting to understand any of that yet?
1: It's very early days right now, of course, but I'll go to your last question first. Uh-huh. I think what I've already started to see is that ChatGPT is this fantastic baseline Meaning, if I'm doing anything personally, it better be at least as good as what ChatGPT would (laughs) be able to do with a prompt. Whether that's coding, whether that's writing an email, whether very soon that's building a PowerPoint presentation, writing marketing documentation, anything. It better be at least that good. And that's not necessarily a challenge to every worker. I don't think workers are going to be largely displaced by ChatGPT in the very near future. But it does mean that I have a brand new kind of, we could say buddy, we could say competitor, however we might want to pose it. Something that that is, well, whatever I do, I better be at least this interesting. <laughs> but I think, is, that's, I think it's very exciting. I think that's actually a really good way to put it is that presents a
2: baseline. And really, your job is to be so much better than that baseline because you're original or creative or fast or... You know, everyone's going to have a different dimension in that, but you that's simply the baseline that all of us are going to be measured against, right? Absolutely.
1: And theres I don't think there's any way around that. The cat is out of the bag.
2: <laughs> all right. There is, without question, because we you know we talked about ChatGPT, but there's also Bard, there's Alpaca, there's Llama, there's Vicuna, which are all open source – there is an AI race happening right now that's happening with the image generation programs as well because you, you have Dolly, you have Mid Journey, you have Stable Diffusion, you have so on and so forth. All of these, of course, raise all sorts of very interesting issues around ethics, You know, where the data sets are coming from, around privacy, You know, Italy banned chat GPT because people are just posting everything in it and they saw that as a privacy problem. And of course, around security, because we know that Hackers and threat actors are using ChatGPT to create an entirely new range of social phishing things. So we have all of that that is going on at the same – as part and parcel of these tools. Then, of course, you have the U.S. that's just busily trying to ban TikTok. And you have a recently released AI Bill of Rights that they want to talk about in America And then you have kids who are basically getting ChatGPT to write their essays, and now their teachers are popping their essays into ChatGPT to say, did you write this? What do we need to think about? Because this field is exploding right now, what do we need to think about and feel our way through if we're going to manage a fair and balanced implementation going forward so that we don't run off the rails? Again, there's
1: a lot there. I'm not sure that we have any idea, one, which one of these is going to win. Mm. I think in 1998, if you asked, oh, who's going to be the top dog in search in 20 years? Somebody would have said like Lycos like or Ask Jeeves or something like that. We don't we don't know who's going to do this best yet at all. And it may not be an individual player like, like Google has basically won search. I, I think it's less likely that an individual player will win this, although I'm not sure. So as far as that perspective, will will it fall down to everybody just feeding all of their information into a single super uh, team that we all have to hopefully trust with that information or be sold ads to about that information as has happened with Google or Facebook or Amazon or any one of basically the monopoly players of uh, the various aspects of the the current internet? I, I, I don't know. Certainly, it does seem like the internet favors a monopoly of thought. in in that basically in any of these kind of verticals, you can say the single organization that won that vertical, which is sort of scary. I I kind of hope that doesn't happen here. I definitely hope that doesn't happen here, but I can definitely imagine that also being the case.
2: I, I think because we have had the examples of particularly Google, that may mean that different regulatory domains, and I think the EU very specifically there may simply put up whatever barriers it can to see a domination by a single system. But you also did mention that a lot of these systems may look very similar underneath but be very differentiated on top, very specific to the customer, very specific to the use case. Does that mean that maybe in a lot of ways we won't worry so much about what's going on underneath because what we're doing on top is quite
1: differentiated? Certainly, if open source ends up being here to stay, then that would be very, very excellent, I think, because that allows for individual organizations to differentiate on top relatively easily. It does appear that you can train something relatively statically and then release it into uh, the open open domain, and it's not the case here that you need to update that training every day or every week, which is good because training one of these is incredibly expensive. Hopefully, that will mean that you can have a more uh, disparate set of these and have more of them available, yeah, in, in the open market. Rather than Google, who's basically the only people who have the money to crawl the entire internet, or, or Microsoft, I guess, but, you know. Nobody wants to use Bing. Or maybe they do now. Now that, uh, <laughs> Bing, now that Bing is hooked in with ChatGPT, maybe it's going to have a resurgence.
2: Yeah, Bing has had a, a modest resurgence in the first month that it's had uh, ChatGPT integrated into it. And, and you're right, though, that there, there is a, a monopoly. All right. You have used your specific skills as a data scientist to look into some of the social issues that we data gather on. For instance, police response to non-emergency calls in various neighborhoods, student loan debt. What kinds of problems do you think we should be focusing on as we democratize AI and as we make data analytics more and more accessible? What are the things that aren't just good for business but are good for us? That we should be solving
0: hello me again excuse the interruption but if we're talking about the challenges we should be using technology to solve healthcare would be very close to the top of that list and this is exactly what harrison ai are working on they're creating ai tools that help address the profound healthcare inequality issues humanity is facing now why is this such a big deal well there's a huge shortage of pathologists and radiologists globally And those we do have aren't evenly distributed. Two thirds of pathologists around the world are based in just 10 countries. So Harrison AI is on a mission to urgently scale global healthcare capacity using AI automation as a second set of eyes that enables clinicians to be more consistently accurate and efficient than ever before. The goal is to improve the standard of care for millions of patients worldwide. So if you're interested in how AI is moving the world forward, particularly in the healthcare sector, you should definitely follow Harrison AI on LinkedIn. Anyway, back to Jeb.
1: I, I can talk a bit about a really a use case that's, that's very near and dear to my heart. It's something that I, I work on very regularly. Uh, and I, I think it's a, a problem that is endemic in the United States, soon to be endemic worldwide, I believe, um, which is access to affordable housing. I work heavily with the, with this, uh, some nonprofits in the state of Missouri to identify every person every day in the state of Missouri who has had eviction notice filed against them and make sure that these folks have access to legal counsel and that they uh, know what their rights are mm-hmm. and that they know when to show up to court, uh, know that it's not hopeless. And honestly, speaking of everyday AI, most of what I'm doing there is making sure that there's a clear pipeline of data coming from the people who are collecting it to the people who actually need to know about it. And in, it's very personalized. I, Somebody here at this house needs to know that they have the right to an attorney in the state of Missouri uh, before they get ca- cast out on the street and before they're homeless with their kids or whatever it might be, which really speaks to this concept of I should know the data that is collected about me as a citizen of whatever country I might be in, and I should be able to do worthwhile things with that data. I should be able to defend myself with the data being collected about, uh, about me. So I, I think the, the single biggest thing that data scientists can do are people in this data and AI industry is make sure that the people you're collecting data about are also able to see that data about themselves and that they can make the best decisions possible with that. I think I'm
2: a little gobsmacked right now because you've really given us a vision for creating a digital advocate, right? This is a role that we don't have people filling. There's no one being paid to do this right now. So that is falling through the cracks, for example, when someone has an eviction notice against them. And they really do need an advocate that would normally be a lawyer if they had money, but they don't. This is one reason why they're being evicted. And so you're using the infrastructure that we have to be able to provide them with the pipeline to the services that they need to access in order
1: to be able to deal with this. Yeah, exactly. And I, everybody's collecting data about us all the time. And yeah. I believe that if we had access to it and uh, we had indeed a little bit of information about what we could do with it, then every person uh, would be better off.
2: So is this one of the big turns that we might see over the next generation? Is that, yes, these organizations are collecting data, and yes, that's part of the bargain, but some of the bargain is that some of that gets fed back to us in a way that can
1: make our lives better. Is that what we should be advocating for? Absolutely. I I I think some organizations have made at least piecemeal efforts in that direction. I remember, uh, I'm not even sure if this is around anymore, but for a while in Facebook, you could click into sort of the buckets that they have put your profile into. So we, based on the things that you've said, we guessed that you're a homeowner in Arkansas with a truck or whatever, right? And that's, why, that's why you're seeing the ads you're seeing. But there, well, I'm sure that there are far more correlations and far more implicit understandings of who you are and the way that you can be, well, we could say either sold to or manipulated, depending on how nice we wanted to talk about it, that would be incredibly insightful about you that these organizations have, um, or that these organizations are aware of. You could see how incredibly targeted the ads are, whether it's uh, you know, depression medication, or uh, you know, we know you're in debt, uh, all of these things that you haven't told them, but they know clearly because you're seeing those ads that they could be turning around and providing you with information for. Low information voting, right? Yeah. That's, that's a scary thing that they could define that pretty well.
2: So just to sum up, you've had a really, really interesting career and your career has, in a sense, echoed the flowering of modern machine learning and modern artificial intelligence. If you could go back to that beginning of your career a decade ago and write a note that you would read so yes, this is the note from the future. You need to listen and heed all of this advice
1: very carefully. What would you be putting on that note? This is going to sound self-serving, but it's okay to use tools. I when I started, I was very, uh, I was very sure that I was the smartest guy in the room, uh, which now I'm not at all sure of. I'm pretty sure I'm not in almost any room, in fact, now. But at the beginning, everything was everything needed to be hand coded. I needed to be building it for the very first time ever, which which is more true back then. It's less true now. But I I remember early on we were, I think we were investigating whether to buy Tableau licenses. And I was like, no way. We're gonna build our own visualization tool. And I think we blew, you know, a year trying to build a terrible visualization tool. We could have just bought some tableau licenses and moved on with our lives. I, I think that's that's what I would I would tell myself. is that it's sometimes it's okay to buy instead of build.
2: Yeah. And I mean, the advantage of building is that you understand the tool intimately, but you do not have the expertise of someone who spent a career building that tool intimately. Right. Right. And it's yeah. always sometimes a trail there. you're a paint company, not a software
1: company, and that's okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess this feeds into it. You know, it is said, and I know from my own experience, we learn far more from our failures than from our successes. So What has your failure, your biggest failure even, what has it taught you?
1: So I worked for a a small startup that collapsed overnight. And uh, what we had done is we had based our entire technology on the Instagram and Facebook APIs, APIs of companies that we had no control over, scraping very specific location information off these AIs to predict uh, uh, news events is what, what the company was. And uh, one day, after the 2016 election, <laughs> Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, basically all simultaneously with, with learning about Cambridge Analytica, changed their APIs. And all of a sudden, overnight, all of the information that we had built our entire company off of disappeared. And that was an incredible learning experience for me that you should never, ever, ever try to build an entire company based on data streams that you have no control over?
2: Uh, one of my friends who founded uh, Flipboard found out that Twitter had just changed its API and turned off all of his access to Twitter for all the people who use Flipboard to share news stories on Twitter. And it's exactly the same thing. You know, People trust that things won't change, but they have no control over them.
1: Yeah, we'd like to think these organizations, because they permeate our lives so much, are public goods, but no, it's, it's one guy, one woman deciding, I'm going to change this today. And, and you have no control over that.
2: <laughs> Jed, we have learned so much in conversation with you. Thank you for joining us on Millions. Oh, it was absolutely my pleasure.
0: So there we go. Mark Pesci in conversation with VP of Platform Strategy at Data IQ, Jed Doherty. Some really fascinating, insightful, and let's be honest, sobering thoughts there. Thank you so much to Jed and of course to Mark. Next time on Millions, we have radiologist and director for clinical AI at Harrison AI, Jarrell Sia. Have a listen to this clip. Back five, 10 years ago, there was lots of debate about whether or not we should be screening for lung cancer. The answer always came out in those circumstances, no. And the reason for that was because the costs outweighed the benefits. It was too expensive, you couldn't get a radiologist to feasibly look at every single patient who would then subsequently get screening for CT, true CT for lung cancer. But what AI unlocks is the possibility of getting an AI to actually look at those images. And so you'd be able to only report the ones that you actually need to do. And that means that you now have a new reason to do these scans. And so more scans will be performed and actually you'd have more work to be done. And and that's just even talking about just the efficiency part of AI, right? AI also unlocks new abilities for for the scan to review things that we didn't know about. As you can hear, Jarrell is passionate about the opportunities technology is rapidly opening up in healthcare. He's a deep expert in the global context of the healthcare system and brings a wonderful balance of ambition and pragmatism to the conversation. So join me for that. And in the meantime, you can keep up to date by subscribing and following Harrison AI on LinkedIn.